Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, but we're here tonight to celebrate the re release of The Angry Buddhist, the new novel by Seth Greenland. Uh, he's the author of The Bones and Shining City, a writer-producer on the Emmy-nominated HBO series Big Love, and a playwright whose play Jungle Rot was award-winning and anthologized in Best American Plays. He was one of the original Huffington Post bloggers, and his writing has also appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Newsday, Chicago Tribune, Black Clock, and many other venues. He lives in Los Angeles. Let's give, let's give a big hometown welcome to Seth Greenland. Thank you, thank you. Um, we're going to uh, raffle off a cherry pie uh, after I'm done reading. Transfer between that awkward moment after the writer finishes reading and before anybody asks any questions. So if you write your name on the card, you give it to me when I'm done. All right. Everybody good with the pen? Okay, this book is uh, called The Angry Buddhist. It's about three brothers, a, uh, an ex-cop, a career criminal, and a United States congressman. It takes place in the nine days around an election in Palm Springs, a uh, congressional election. The, uh, I'm going to read three sections, two short ones and a longer one. and. Uh, the first section I'm going to read is the, the, the section where Jimmy Ray Duke, who is the uh, angry Buddhist of the title, sees his brother's opponent, Mary Swain, in the, uh, for the first time in the flesh. In the desert, the sun is an anarchist. Molecules dance madly beneath the relentless glare. Unity gives way to chaos, and every day people lose their minds. But you wouldn't know this in Palm Springs, California. A hundred years ago, a wasteland, home to the Cahuilla Indian tribe and a handful of white settlers who had relocated to this desolate outpost from points east. Today, a golden oasis, drawing privileged tourists from cooler climates in search of sunshine, clean air, and a place apart from the rest of the world. In air-conditioned cars, they cruise exclusive neighborhoods, gaping at perfectly restored mid-century modern homes that cling to the inhospitable land. The verdant lawns are neat as graves. The streets are quiet as heaven. You would think nothing ever happens here. You would be wrong. 
On a heat-blasted afternoon in late October, Jimmy Ray Duke positions himself to the side of a political rally in the Save Mart parking lot just off the Sunny Bono Memorial Highway. Average build, dressed down in a loose black t-shirt, green cargo pants, and running shoes. Behind dark sunglasses, his bloodshot eyes regard Harding Marvin, police chief of nearby Desert Hot Springs, who stands gun barrel straight on a riser that makes his six foot four, 240 pound frame appear even more imposing. Shaved head looming over a dress blue uniform, Marvin, known to one and all as hard, is energized as he steps to the microphone in front of nearly 100 people. Jimmy has listened to Hard speak innumerable times because he used to work for him. Election day is one week from tomorrow, Hard booms, perspiration running in rivulets down the side of his broad face. And on that day, we're going to send some new blood to the United States House of Representatives. We're going to send a message to the elites that the same old, same old doesn't cut it anymore. It's a great pleasure to introduce a gal who's going to kick butt from here to the other side of this great country. Ladies and gentlemen, she's Helen High Heels. More shouts and whoops. This is an image they love. Hell, fancy shoes, the cloak of religion pierced with stilettos, neatly summer, summing up the exploitable duality. Then, give it up for Mary Swain. Hard steps back with a flourish and leads the applause. She glides to the microphone and Jimmy notes the burnished skin, the blinding smile, the $500 worth of blonde highlights, fitted red blouse set off against a matching white linen skirt and jacket that wrap her like cellophane. Then he envisions her without any of it, which he knows is the whole idea. <laughs> Mary Swain thanks Chief Marvin, then turns to the crowd and says, what a great day in the American desert. <laughs> Signs wave adorned with her name. Cell phones are held skyward, people taking pictures. Jimmy wonders how any sane person could come out to hear a politician talk on this scorching afternoon. Breathes deeply, tries to relax. He's been attempting to meditate lately, and to this end has been struggling through books about Buddhism. Exhausted from another bad night's sleep, he's here for a reason, to practice seeing life clearly without an emotional charge on his way to liberation from suffering. Jimmy watches the show for the next 20 minutes as Mary Swain performs with a mixture of stories, jokes, and fire, pulling, tweaking, and working the crowd into a supine mass of quivering optimism. Her voice is friendly, homespun. It invites you in, asks you to sit down, and pours you a cup of coffee. It confides in you, says you and I are friends. It says you, the voter, have an ally, as beautiful and shapely as I, and together we will share the bounty with which God has gifted us. She learned this flim-flam from her husband, a master of the high-end grift. Shad Swain became rich, selling subprime mortgages to bad loan risks, then bailed before the con imploded. They met 10 years ago when Mary was working as a stewardess on his Gulfstream 6, and now have four photogenic children. My opponent went to Washington and forgot about you, the people who sent him. After I win, we can all forget him, but I won't forget you, the real Americans. <laughs> the real Americans? What is that supposed to mean? Jimmy doesn't care for Mary Swain's brand of sexed-up palaver, and he's as real as any American. But the crowd devours the red meat, communes with Mary, and then in lieu of a cigarette, they rhythmically chant, Mary, 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 while her gleaming smile widens. The candidate, lustrous chestnut mane tumbling over broad shoulders, downshifts to a crinkly grin, satisfied and sure. She's saying, we will take this fight to the heart of the beast, and they're devouring it. The we, the fight, the beast, each element of the rhetoric bringing them along with this avatar and her promise of power and release.
Jimmy sees Mary Swain gazing out over the undulating mass of citizens, the white faces, the brown ones, all of them full-throated despite the afternoon heat, thrusting up from the blacktop like a death ray. And here's the call for renewal, prosperity, and faith. Mary Swain is magnetic, a natural performer, and Jimmy catches himself enjoying her act. He knows she's just a politician selling the usual swill, but it's hard to take your eyes off this woman. He marvels at the cool appearance. His armpits are moist with perspiration, but Mary Swain looks as dry as the desert air. Her bearing is a runner's, erect, shoulders back, chin pointed toward the future. And her legs, Jimmy has never seen legs like that on a politician. Her hemline stops several inches above her knees, the better to highlight the supple calves that curve into a pair of red pumps. Jimmy figures Mary Swain's a little younger than he, late 30s, but spas, trainers, and Botox lop 10 years off. She looks more like a character in a video game than a candidate for the United States House of Representatives. <laughs> Throughout the book, an anonymous blogger comments on the action. The blogger calls, uh, refers to himself as Desert Machiavelli. We, we don't know this person's identity. This is the first blog post that appears in the book. Did it bother anyone besides the Machiavelli that Chief Marvin introduced the feisty former flight attendant, otherwise known as Mary Swain, at her rally today? Yes, blogheads, I know that he looked like he was delivering a stripogram at an all-girl birthday party. But the Machiavelli did not enjoy the symbolism. Is there something slightly South American, or even dare I say German, about a guy in policeman mufti with a gun at his hip introducing a political candidate in the land of the free giveaway? <laughs> Aren't the police supposed to be neutral when they're in uniform? What kind of message does this send to the hoi polloi when cops in uniform are backing candidates? It's a little fascist, frankly. I don't mean to imply that Mary Swain understands fascism. It's not like they teach it at flight attendance school. But there's a direct line from uniforms shilling for candidates to someone knocking on your door at 3 a.m. and dragging you off to where they hold you without trial until they feel like letting you go, unless they want to push you out a window and tell everyone you jumped. And was it me, or did the chief look a little turned on by the whole spectacle? Is Marvin hard for the flight attendants? <laughs> Let us not forget, blogheads, Mary Swain's danger lies in her cheerful, erotic charge. When fascism arrives, it will not be in jackboots, but rather wrapped in an American flag, carrying a cross, and wearing fuck-me pumps. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping ahead a little bit, um, this is a scene that takes place when uh, Hard Marvin goes home, the, uh, the police chief of Desert Hot Springs. Uh, he's in a long marriage and uh, he has not been entirely loyal to his wife. And uh, as you have grokked from the previous scene, he's working uh, to, uh, to elect Mary Swain. That's all you need to know for this scene. 29 Palms is home to the Air Ground Combat Center, the largest marine base in the world. 14 miles east of the town of Joshua Tree on Route 62, it's the last outpost of civilization for nearly 70 miles. The quiet high desert streets and modest houses are home to a mixture of military dependents, ex-military, retirees looking for cheap housing, people who hate cities, and lovers of the vast emptiness. Winter nights, the temperature drops to near freezing. Summers can get up to 120 degrees. It's a tough, hard-scrabble place where the residents earn their flinty outlooks because they're hardy enough to live there. If you're passing through on your way to Arizona and want to stop at a bar for a cold beer, know that it's the kind of town where the drunken Marine seated to your left might pull a gun. 
The Marvin's house is a tidy bungalow, painted a deep red at 21 Desert View on a small rise on the west side facing east over the rooftops. Three wooden steps lead to the front door and the sound of a neighbor's wind chimes floats in on the early evening breeze. Mounted above the lintel is a hand-carved sign hard made in his garage workshop. It reads, Casa Contenta. Fonda Jean Marvin likes dinner to be over in time to watch her game show at 7.30, so the Marvin family dined for years at 7 o'clock every evening. The serving, the conversation, and the dishes invariably done in less than 20 minutes. <laughs> Now that only Hard and Von Jean are home every evening, it's just the two of them at the kitchen table. Bane, Bane is Hard's Rottweiler, a large, scary dog. Bane lies snoring uh, on the linoleum floor. There's a bandage on Hard's neck covering the wound Nadine inflicted. I should say earlier, when Hard was breaking up with his girlfriend, she, in her apartment, uh, she had prepared uh, melon balls for him uh, that she was going to serve with margaritas, and she stabbed him in the neck with a salad fork, uh, <laughs> narrowly missing a carotid, and it's important you know this for this scene. <laughs> To his relief, Vonda Jean hasn't asked about it. In her early 40s, she's in superb physical condition and rivals Bane and Fearsome. Her body is slim and tight in the black tracksuit she's wearing. Her attractive features are permanently set in an expression that suggests someone is trying to hustle her. <laughs> She, she teaches various Asian hand-to-hand -hand combat techniques five days a week at Mojave Martial Arts, and while the constant pounding has taken a toll on her knees at a distance with her silky blonde bob and cinched waist, she could be mistaken for 26. Although Vonda Jean is not a big woman, especially when glimpsed near her hulking husband, Hart is afraid of her. Her wrath is mighty, and Hart is loath to provoke it. He has been tempted to smack her after a few of her more excoriating outbursts, but what, stays his, but what stays his hand is the knowledge that while he could never actually kill her, he believes she is perfectly capable of shooting him in his sleep. <laughs> they are eating fried chicken Vonda Jean picked up at KFC since she didn't feel like cooking tonight and hard never feels like it. There was a time she would have prepared a hot meal for him as a matter of course, but those days have gone the way of the muscle cars he used to favor and the cheap gasoline on which they ran. Vonda Jean doesn't believe in divorce. If she did, she would be eating takeout chicken with someone else right now. The two of them have reached a sour equilibrium. Vonda Jean is in the early days of life's next stage and not in a good mood about it. It isn't something she'll discuss with Hard, things she can discuss with him being an ever-shrinking category. So she chews her chicken and tries to imagine she is somewhere else with someone else and assumes he is doing the same. The only sounds come from the television in the living room. She always, she always leaves it on so she'll have something else to listen to when the event Hard starts talking. <laughs> Vonda Jean on her third beer, Hard working to catch up. They don't get a lot of visitors at night, so it is something of a surprise when the doorbell rings. Bane barks energetically. He charges to the door and waits. Hind legs tense, anticipates the tearing of a human thorax. Vonda Jean rises and shushes the dog. Bane ignores her and keeps up the racket. A young woman is standing at the door. Tanned and athletic, she gives a half grin when Vonda Jean asks over the din of barking what it is she wants. Chief Marvin is the reply. Harding! Vonda Jean calls over her shoulder, the only one in his life who calls him by his birth name. Someone at the door for you. Bane determines the threat level will not require his skills and wanders away. In a moment, Hard rumbles out of the kitchen. Can I help you? 
His attitude suggests nothing other than a desire to be of service. There is no sense he has ever seen her before. I think you can, Nadine says. She is confident standing there in the doorway, backlit by the streetlight in front of the Marvin home. Vonda Jean takes another look in the girl's direction. Is there something in her tone that begs notice? Difficult to tell. Maybe she's just flirty. Hart had played himself out of contention anyway, so what's she worried about? Do you two know each other? This from Vonda Jean. I'm a civilian volunteer at the Desert Hot Springs Police Department. Good for you, Vonda Jean says. The theme music from the game show drifts in from the living room, and she excuses herself. Hard beckons Nadine inside with a friendly wave. She follows him into the kitchen, the dog trailing. Hard watching Nadine's non-reaction to the dog. Contrary to nature, she does not appear to be at all frightened of the animal. It figures. Compared to her demented chihuahua, Bane has the manners of an English butler. In the kitchen, Hard looks at Nadine and quietly growls, I thought we were done after you stuck a fork in my neck. What the Sam Hill are you doing here? Bane settles into his corner bed, ignoring them. Someone threatened to kill me, Nadine hisses, as if the intensity with which she expresses this information might motivate Hard to do something about it. But what he says is, I don't blame them, Nadine. You're a righteous pain in the ass. Did you hear what I told you? Have you been drinking? So? I ought to arrest you for driving over here. A voice from the other room. Harding, do we have any avocados? <laughs> Nadine starts at the sound. It is as if she has forgotten there is another person in the house, someone who is more than an adjunct to her hazy plan. Hard half expects Nadine to respond on cue and go marching into the living room for a sit down with his wife. He is relieved that she remains rooted in the kitchen. Hard glances toward the counter and sees three avocados in a plastic bowl. He shouts to his wife that tonight is her lucky night. From her perch in front of the television in the living room, Vonda Jean, voiced like a bullhorn, asks how he feels about making her some guacamole. Keeping his eyes on Nadine, he tells Vonda Jean he'll be pleased to. Nadine says, I could take that guacamole in there and tell your nice wife everything. You're seriously misreading the situation if you think that woman's nice, Nadine. She's nice like a wolverine. I'm just saying, maybe she'd shoot you. You want to kill me, you better do it yourself. Nadine is certainly assertive. It is a quality of hers that Hard greatly enjoys in another context, but right now it is more problematic. Removing the bowl from the cabinet, he pretends to turn his attention to the avocados. He knows what Nadine is capable of and is in no mood for a repeat performance. Had she hit a carotid artery with a salad fork, his blood would have painted her kitchen wall. Is there a link between a desire for the unhinged swing from the rafters sex Nadine practices and mental instability? And if there is, what does it say about him? Hard likes to think he has a crazy side too, but not like Nadine, who Hard thinks might be crazy in the way of heavy medication and locked wards. <laughs> How's your neck? You lifted my taser, didn't you? I have no idea what you're talking about. Does she have it on her? He could grab her and find out, but she might scream, and that would bring Vonda Jean running. Instead, he takes a paring knife out of the drawer, keeping a wary eye on Nadine. Did she wince when she saw the blade? Maybe it was a twitch. Twitching is not an encouraging sign. <laughs> Hard is dexterous with a knife, can bone a fish or skin a rattler with his eyes closed. How easy would it be to stick Nadine? Good payback, too. Being an officer of the law, Hard doesn't like where his mind is going and upbraids himself silently for not thinking like one. The man can go black. He resolves to try and prey on it. 
Hard's not religious, but if he's going to get into politics, that will have to change. <laughs> now he cuts the avocados in half, dislodges the pits, and scrapes the fruit from the stippled skin. He places the pieces in the bowl where he smashes them to a pulp with a spoon, all the while remaining acutely aware of every muscle tick from Nadine. He gets a lemon and a jar of salsa from the refrigerator. Slicing the lemon in two, he squeezes both halves into the bowl. Feels the astringent juice running over his fingers. Then he pours some salsa on top and stirs the viscous glop together. Nadine watches in silence. The knife, covered with a film of green, lies on the counter. It occurs to Hard she could reach for it. Thinks about the taser again. He knows the damage she can inflict with a salad fork. A taser in her hands would be a nuclear weapon. He hopes Nadine will behave. Should he warn her about the dog? You're a regular chef boy RD, Hard. How come you never cooked for me? Nadine, I'm going to bring my wife this guacamole. Indicates the bowl with his hand. His delicacy of tone is intended to have a calming effect, but just barely offsets the murderous aspect behind it. Right now, I want you to wait in here. When I get back to the kitchen, we're going to call you a cab because I don't want you driving home. If you do anything, and I mean anything, that deviates from that plan. Before Nadine can react, Hard grabs her right arm, swings it behind her back, twists her around, and clamps his hand over her mouth. The move is so swift and violent, Nadine goes limp from fear, her eyes swinging wildly around the kitchen. Bane lifts his head, but otherwise remains still. For a moment, Hard thinks Nadine might have fainted. He quickly pats her down with his free hand, determines she has no weapons. When he sees her eyeballs bugging, he places his lips next to her left ear and says, I could snap your neck right now. His breathing quick, her skin warm. Hard notices the pulse in her artery and her lemony scent. Nadine, understand. I mean you no harm, but don't try and put one over on me because that won't work. I'll let you go, but you stay calm now. Nod your head if you're willing to do that. He eases his grip, and Nadine, beaten, nods meekly. Hard lowers his hand, disappointed. It appeared he had half a mind to kill her just then. He didn't feel anything with that Mexican. Wonders if he'd feel anything if he killed Nadine. Probably not, he concludes. You okay? Nadine nods again. Now wait right here. Don't want you picked up for a DUI. Taking the bowl of guacamole, Hard opens the pantry, grabs a bag of corn chips, and leaves the kitchen. Vonda Jean doesn't look up from the TV when he hands her the bowl of guacamole. What's she doing here? Gal's got some personal problems. You're her shrink? It's not like that. I'm calling her a cab. Is she your girlfriend, Harding? Still not looking away from the TV screen. I don't have a girlfriend, all right? Someone threatened her. She wanted to tell me. You're the knight in shining armor? Hard wants to take the bag of chips, crumble them up, and dump the contents on Vonda Jean's head. But instead, he hands it to her. Then he gets down on his knee. I swear to you, I barely know her. I'm a public figure, Vonda Jean. All kinds of kooky people come up and tell me things. At our house? She's not coming back. I like you on your knee. You look good down there. How does she know he's on his knee? She hasn't so much as glanced in his direction since he entered the room. He looks at his wife desperately wishing he were no longer married to her. But that will have to wait until after the election. Why don't you ask her to come in here so we can chat, Vonda Jean says. What about? Just being social, tell her to come in. She's shy, hard back on his feet now. She's shy? I thought you said you didn't know her. Gal had a rough day. I told you, someone threatened her. Before Hard can do anything, Vonda Jean is walking into the kitchen. Hard follows her. In the kitchen, Bane is devouring his dinner. Hard can't remember. Has he fed him? 
The do door leading to the backyard is open, a warm breeze blowing the gingham curtains over the sink. Nadine is not there. Vandajean looks at Hard like this is his fault. Where's your friend? First of all, she's not my friend. I thought we already made that clear. You're awful sensitive about it, aren't you? Hard chooses to ignore this repost. And second, I have no idea where the hell she is. Far as I can tell, she left. Now go on back in there and watch your TV show. The couple has exchanged more words than they have in the entire previous week, and it is enough for Vonda Jean. She turns and marches out of the kitchen. Hard goes to the refrigerator for a bottle of beer. He unscrews the top and settles into a chair where he watches Bane contentedly finish his dinner. Hard's week had been going so well. There was the FaceTime campaigning with Mary Swain, and the introduction he provided that day was one of the highlights of his entire career. Hard had never spoken in front of so many people before, and he likes the way it feels. The love they give Mary Swain is an inspiration to him. Hard likes to stir things up. He has opinions and doesn't mind sharing them. To go off like that in front of a crowd and have them respond the way they did, the shouts, the vibrating energy, that was something he could get used to. Hard doesn't want to be a police chief forever. He's looking at the larger world now. Perhaps he'll run for mayor of 29 Palms, and if Mary Swain ascends to loftier heights, he can follow her to Congress. Representative Harding Marvin. But with Nadine on the loose, the woman as predictable as a cobra, Hard is worried. The trouble she stirs up could derail any hopes of advancing his station in life. Hard considers Mary Swain and Nadine, one so self-possessed, the other so desperate. Why had he misread Nadine? It would have been easy to resist her convenience store come on. But whom was he kidding? Hart isn't wired to resist the hormonal blandishments of anyone who looks like Nadine. Still, he would prefer to be having sex with Mary Swain. There's a woman he can respect. And that would be new for Hart, extramarital sex with someone he esteems. <laughs> Mary Swain can do that, get people thinking in different ways. Clever and gorgeous, she probably could show him a thing or two naked. Hart is in awe of her ability to work that sex kit in quality. American female politicians generally skewing in the schoolmarm direction. He wonders if he could massage that angle himself. He makes the baldness work for him, something not all white men can do. But he doesn't know if he can take his sex appeal as far as Mary Swain. Hart is going to spend the evening of the election watching the returns in her hotel suite. And it'll be the first time in forever he's in a hotel room not thinking about the minibar or the porn on demand. The canned laughter of a sitcom seeps in from the living room. Another evening at home with Vonda Jean. Nadine wandering God knows where. Hard needs a concrete plan. He needs to get divorced, and he needs to make sure Nadine doesn't cause problems. Takes a deep swig from the beer bottle and finishes the contents. Then he returns to the fridge and helps himself to another. Bane is mopping up his kibble. Hard realizes it isn't a good sign that he envies the dog. <laughs> when you're envying your dog, he knows something must have gone seriously wrong with your life. And where was Nadine? Maybe the coyotes will take care of the problem. In the living room, Hard sits on his brown naugahyde recliner and watches an hour of mind-numbing television with his wife, figures its penance for the unwanted visitor. When he can take it no more, he grabs another beer from the refrigerator and heads for the backyard. Bane follows him out there and lies at his feet. Sitting beneath the stars, he takes out his phone and thumbtypes the following message. I meant what I said tonight. Keep it up and something bad will happen to you. Then he hits send. Nadine might be a little unbalanced, but he knows she isn't dense. He suspects she won't be contacting him again. Thank you. So, let me... Take these cards of yours.
Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yes. My card. Ah. Yes, my card. Uh, well, maybe we should. That's the one over there? Do you have a pen? I want you to have a chance to so we're wrapping off a cherry pie. Oh, okay. Yeah. So wait, what is the pen? Just write your pen on it. Okay. That's all you need to do. No questions. <laughs> the great odds. Your, your health history. Yeah, <laughs> nothing personal. <laughs> You're allergic to cherry. Yeah, exactly. No, um, we're, we're spicing up the reading. I know you missed the beginning. It's, I think there should be pie at every reading. So, all right. Now, I'm not looking at them. I'm shuffling them up. Oh, perfect. Great. My assistant, come here. But first, I'd like to cut her in half. Right. And the winner of the uh, cherry pie is Psycho. <laughs> Psycho. <laughs> Cheers again. <laughs> the evening just took a very strange turn. Dale. Dale, you won the cherry pie. Congratulations. This is from House of Pies across the street. Oh, this should last you a few days. It weighs as much as a bowling ball. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Here you go. Seth, are you taking questions? I am absolutely taking questions. But first, I'm going to auction off a salami. No, yeah, of course. I mean, this is, you know, this is, the cherry pie was to transition between the actual literary portion of the evening and get through the awkward moment where no one asks a question. So now that we've, we've done a little bit of that, yeah, if anybody has any questions, I'm happy to uh, entertain. Yes? Um, I read the book, and um, Thank you. part of the character about whom you were just mm -hmm. it's not too much of a guy. I'm sorry, say that again? No. Um, but nevertheless, in the course of the novel, because of things that happened to him, I found myself really wanting, feeling sorry for him, and wanting justice for him. So I was wondering if that was something that you wanted to evoke from the Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because his predicament, without giving anything away for those of you who haven't read it, read it rather, his, his predicament is horrible at the end of the book. But what I think the way the book ends, there's, there's some hope that it might be sorted out. I mean, it's, th things are looking bad for him, but I, th I think that there's a glimmer there that perhaps the worst may not happen, or though perhaps it might, actually. But, but I thought, uh, he was, he was a, a character that I really enjoyed writing, actually, because uh, I saw a guy in Florida, a, a police, he was, I'm not sure if he was a chief, but he was pretty high in the police department in one of the towns down there. I think it might have been Tampa. Introduce a candidate in uniform. And it really, really shook me up, actually. And I, I found that very, I mean, horrifying in a, for a democracy. But, but I thought it would be really uh, a challenge to take a guy like that for whom I, who I find abhorrent in a lot of ways and try to make a reader feel some degree of sympathy. So I'm really glad to hear you say that, actually. Yeah. Yes. Uh, those of us here who have always uh, appreciated your uh, sharp and uh, perceptive wit and your uh, uh, very refreshing uh, uh, kind of anti-right wing, you know, kind of uh, commentary. Um, I think some of us might have been a little bit surprised uh, at the uh, incorporation of uh, certain uh, Buddhist concepts mm -hmm. into your work. Uh, could you please tell us? Um, uh, 
how much uh, research did you do into certain uh, schools and or sects of Buddhism? Let's say, uh, uh, specifically, I'm thinking of, uh, oh, either, uh, say, uh, Soka Gakkai International or uh, Nichiren Shoshu uh, or any, any various organizations. That um, I, uh, I, I do not claim to be a Buddhist scholar or, or an expert in Buddhism uh, at all. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, is a uh, uh, is, and uh, I, uh, I would ask her questions. I've practiced vipassana meditation. That's what you see in here is something of a boulderization of basic vipassana meditation. So uh, I was I was not so much interested in delving deeply into Buddhism as <clears throat> exploring how. Uh, what's how a certain uh, group of people in America now are taking uh, what are Buddhist precepts, uh, using them in secular contexts as means of uh, you know just dealing with the ups and downs of, of life, and hadn't seen it used in a context like this before. And uh, I, I think there's certain people who might say, well, it's a cheapening of of Buddhism, and on a certain level, it, it, it definitely is. But it's also something that's going on now, and is becoming more and more common, and interestingly, more and more mainstream. Uh, and so that's what my aim was. I mean, in no way does this attempt to be any serious exploration of Buddhism. Uh, it's just my point is that, uh, uh, for instance, the SGI, or Soka Gakkai mm -hmm. International, uh, has been trying to promote now for about uh, 50 odd years uh, the idea that uh, Buddhism is supposed to be something that's relevant to just about anybody, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, and isn't something that you go often to a monastery right. in Thailand or the Himalayas in order to practice it. In other words, to be separate from society, uh, the idea uh, in, with the SGI is to be an active part of society mm -hmm. using the, uh, the benefits and the, uh, and the uh, high life condition that, that you try to acquire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this implicitly is endorsing that, obviously, because that's what he's trying to do in the book. Yeah. I was also interested in your research, and those communities you're writing about are fascinating. Mm -hmm. Very small, close mm -hmm. They do the tourist business. Right. How did you find your way in? Did you have some source? Or I just, I, I went out there over and over, and I would just, I would park my car in neighborhoods, and I would get out, and I would walk, and I, the house that I just described, that's a house I stood in front of on 29 Palms, on a rise overlooking the town. Uh, you know, I just went there and spent time, really. And I, I would sit in, in 29 Palms, I would sit in Denny's and, and listen to people talk, you know, and you get, you get a sense of what it is just by being there, really, and absorbing. It seems like the kind of community where people always come from somewhere else. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and a lot of people are passing through, do you know, and there's a, there's a ton of military there. It's the biggest marine base in the world, I think, in 29 Palms, and it's a, it's a really kind of strange mix of people, and I was, I was drawn to it. One of the reasons I set the book out there was I wanted an excuse to go to the desert, and I kept going out because it's, I, I found it had these magnetic qualities. For me, it's, it's, it is a unique place, and uh, I, I still feel that. Actually, I, I'm looking forward to the next trip whenever it is. I, I feel like I just, uh, I've only begun to, to really, uh, I, I hope I get to write about it more. Yeah. So who are you reading this Now, who are you reading? Oh, uh, well, I'm reading, uh, I'm struggling through Tom Jones. 
the Henry Fielding novel. I'm on, uh, I'm on about page 400. It's a, it's a bit of a slog. Yeah, that's yeah. than I got. Yeah. Let me tell you, Yeah, my daughter is reading it in college, and I said, you know, I'd never read it. I will read that with you. And she bailed after 100 pages. And I said, you know, I am, I am going to get to, I'm, yeah, and I'm get to the end of this damn book, you know. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with that, actually. I, I know. I know. There's a movie. Yeah. No, I, I have to. The movie's easier to get through. Yeah. No. Exactly. No, I'll be, I'm, lo I'm looking forward to the movie. But. Yeah. Do you have words you save up and you look for an opportunity to use, like palaver? Yeah. Yeah. I use palaver a lot. I. Words. Yeah. It no. Thank you. It's not often. No. I. I wrote a piece for. Uh, my wife has this blog uh, about mindfulness and I guess wrote a piece for it and I was talking about uh, an experience I had when I had dinner with somebody 25 years ago who told me they were a Buddhist and I reacted as if they had told me they were a Martian and and I said that we were we were exchanging the usual palaver one does on a first date so they're twice in one week yeah I love that word yeah, yeah. anybody uh, else should I auction off more food or, uh, <laughs> All right, thank you very much for coming and listening to me read. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.